Welcome everyone to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 263 recap on Twitter Spaces. It's Thursday, August 10th, and we'll be talking about a vulnerability in LeBitcoin that has resulted in some loss of funds, a discussion of denial of service in Lightning. Clara is going to be speaking about HTLC endorsements and plans for implementations on Lightning to collect that data. Peter Todd's going to talk about some of his proposed changes to Bitcoin Core's default relay policy. Josie's going to join us to walk through Bitcoin Core PR Review Club related to silent payments. And then we have a BDK release and some notable code changes, including the Renee Pay plugin for Core Lightning. We'll go through some introductions. Mike Schmidt, contributor at Optech and executive director at Brain Funding Bitcoin Open Source Developers. Merch? Hey, I'm Merch. I work at Chain Code Labs. Dave? I'm Dave. I uh, help write Optech, and I'm also the co-author on the third edition of Mastering Bitcoin. Peter? Hey, so I've been working on and off Bitcoin Core for, uh, you know, quite a few years. Um, more recently off, but even more recently, I uh, did do uh, two uh, pull requests, as uh, um, people have noted. And uh, I'm also involved with uh, timestamping, with open timestamps and a bunch of consulting stuff. The first item of the newsletter, which this week happens to be an action item, which we have not seen in a while. We have it as an action item, and we also cover it in the news section in more detail. I think we could probably cover all of the discussion here initially and then skip it when we go to the news. Um, so severe the Bitcoin, Bitcoin Explorer vulnerability involving the BX seed command, which creates BIP32 seeds. Um, well, apparently this seed command only used 32 bit of system time to generate the seed, which is an incredibly small space. And it seems that someone has discovered this and has potentially or definitely stolen approximately 30 Bitcoin worth um, of funds from users using this exploit. Dave, I saw that you had posted on Twitter about raising awareness for this. I, I believe maybe some of the researchers who have discovered this reached out to you since you're doing some work on mastering Bitcoin. Do you want to walk through a bit of the, of the detail there? Sure. Actually, I first heard about it from Merch, who apparently heard about it from one of the uh, researchers. Um, so, like, first of all, we start with the action item, which is if you used uh, LibBitcoin's BXC command, or you think you may have used a process that involved it, you definitely want to go check them on your wallet right now. Uh, if you don't know what you're doing, if you think you might have used software that used it and you're not aware of the software, go talk to the people who made the software. Just go out there, investigate if you think this may have been involved in your process at all. Um, so there were a number of popular instructions, including in the second edition of the book Mastering Bitcoin and uh, also on the LibBitcoin website that suggested uh, that you use the BXC command as the first step in a process to creating a, uh, either private keys directly uh, or creating uh, seeds for hierarchical der derivation wallets or for creating mnemonics that will also be used to seed uh, an HD wallet. Um, and like Mike said in the introduction, it's only using 32 bits of entry. That's about 4 billion combinations. It's possible to check uh, the generated addresses for a, an HD seed for 4 billion of those 
in a day or so on a computer. It could be a bit slower depending on what optimizations you use or not, but it's possible to do using a single computer in a reasonable amount of time. So it's very, very insecure. Um, most of the instructions, uh, pretty much all the instructions, did not have any disclaimer about the lack of security on this command. There was one set of instructions that did, uh, and the author of the command has claimed that because that one set of instructions had a disclaimer that was pretty hard to understand unless you were already uh, well-versed in uh, cryptography and cryptographic security. And even then, if you were well-versed, it was sort of ambiguous. Um, but yeah, there was one set of instructions that had a disclaimer. The author has claimed that this is intentional behavior, but this is not secure. Um, however, none of the sets of instructions that the authors of Lipidcoin uh, wrote provided a safe way to use the command. Uh, so it's a little disingenuous, I think, uh, to claim that this is intentional behavior. It may be intentioned, but it was not very helpful to the users. And as Mike said in the introduction, about a million dollars have been lost in Bitcoin, uh, quite likely, possibly more because of this attack. Um, I, I really don't know what to say besides this is a really important thing to do is to have your process checked by an expert. Um, even in this case, I don't know. I suspect a lot of people would have missed this problem. I certainly didn't notice it was a problem. Um, not great. Uh, definitely a security vulnerability. Like I said in the beginning, if you think uh, LibBitcoin's BXC command was used in your process at all, you absolutely need to go out, check your wallet, and try to see what you can do, if there's anything you can do. I, I think one thing that at least my cursory look at this uh, revealed was that it had an option where you could set the length of the um key material generated and it was like 128 192 or 256 and uh, none of them actually there however there was no way to use it with more than 32 bit input material it would just whatever you give it cut it down to 32 bit so even if you gave it a different seed from some other better entropy source it would still curtail the entropy to 32 bits which, as we said, is only 4 billion possible tries, regardless of where the entropy originally came from. And um, so at least in the Mastering Bitcoin example, it was uh, presented in the context that the operating system provides the entropy. But uh, later when that was changed, that comment in the book was not updated. So I I don't know. I, I don't think that... that uh, saying this was intentional is a good way of rounding it. A couple notable things from the discovery of this, the, the, this class of error or bug is use of cryptographically weak pseudo random number generator. It's also similar to an issue that happened with a, another wallet called Trust Wallet last year, where I believe there was a similar issue with a similar type of attack. And I think maybe even using one of the same underlying libraries which had the same issue. Um, there is a website with details on this research that was done by some folks called milksad.info. 
And if you're wondering why it's called milk sad, um, if you run this command on the versions that are affected with a system time of 0.0, since this, the seeds were essentially derived from the system time, you could just put in a fake system time of zero, and it would always generate the same exact uh, secret. And it was a mnemonic with milk, sad, wage, cup as the first words. So they decided to name this website um, and this this uncovered uh, research milk, sad. And the website also has a lookup service where you can look up a hashed version of your seed to see if it's in the list of affected seeds. Obviously, all sorts of caveats if you're going to be doing that and handling key material as well. Mercer, Dave, anything else to add? I mean, I think this is one of those things where the problem is this kind of, you know, apparently bug is indistinguishable from an intentional backdoor. And my advice to anyone using, you know, LibBitcoin is just stop at this point. You know, the, the developers aren't trustworthy and that's that. Um, maybe a similar comment. Uh, it, it looks like also the that there's been a significant drop in the, the GitHub activity since around the time that this bug was being exploited. So not sure what that has to do with, with any of this attack, but, you know, maybe be cautious of, of using this tool at this point or these tools. Merch? No, I, I think that uh, LibBitcoin has been less active maintained in the last four years already. So I think it, it was always a fairly small team. And I think that maybe featuring it this strongly in a book like Mastering Bitcoin is a little much of an endorsement that misled some people into thinking this is a widespread tool. But I don't think that uh, LibBitcoin was ever that well reviewed. So uh, just seconding Peter's comment here, I don't think you should be using this tool in your process. I can say that uh, as of yesterday, all mentions of Bitcoin will not occur in the third edition of Mastering Bitcoin. They've all been removed as of a commit yesterday. So uh, that is that is definitely changed. Uh, I had already removed the appendix. That was the uh, problem uh, in an earlier change. But it, like Merch said, this is it's not a well. Uh, and Peter said uh, this is not a well-reviewed uh, library. Uh, it's got other problems and it's got this really big problem so yeah and, and you know I, and i want to go say in support of mastering bitcoin here i mean you know this kind of mistake in a book it happens i mean books are an enormous amount of effort to write you know expecting book authors to in-depth review every single thing that they go reference well in theory yes they should do it you know if they don't like consider yourself warned writing a book is a lot of effort and you know, people don't always catch every single issue there. I mean, the responsibility here on, on LibBitcoin and, you know, if you copy and paste something out of a book, you probably should get it reviewed by someone else. I've been writing about Bitcoin uh, for about 10 years now. I've made lots of mistakes, including uh, there's a CV out on some documentation I wrote about uh, Pete's um, opt-in RBF implementation and uh, so there's a CV out on that. So I'm very well aware that making mistakes in documentation is it's absolutely something that's going to happen. Um, it's just, it's really sad. The whole thing, I think, is just very sad. And I do, I, I don't know, I just wish it had broken differently. Moving on to the news section, 
of the newsletter. The first item is denial of service protection design philosophy. We covered in the newsletter and in our recap discussion a few weeks ago in newsletter number 261, uh, a series of talking points that happened at the Lightning Dev Summit in-person meeting. And one of those topics uh, was heavily focused on channel jamming discussion. Um, and AJ responded to the email thread related to that discussion. And he says, quote, the cost that will deter an attacker is unreasonable for an honest user. And the cost that is reasonable for an honest user is too low to deter an attacker. And that was sort of towards the beginning of his discussion um, about a potential alternate way to price out attackers with regards to channel jamming. Um, Dave, did you want to say something? Did you, did you want to walk through this? Uh, I'm sorry, the newsletter was unclear on that. That was actually in the notes. So that was uh, in uh, Carla Kirk Cohen's uh, notes um, about the right. AJ didn't say that, sorry. <laughs> AJ didn't say that. You're, you're right. You're right. Um, but uh, yes. Okay. So the notes did say that. And then AJ suggested an alternative to pricing out attackers. And he suggest he sort of resurrects this idea from a few years ago about forward commitment fees and reverse hold fees. Um, Dave, you may be better at speaking to this than I would. Maybe you want to talk about this old idea and the revitalization of it. Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, the main point, I think, being made in that thread by AJ, and I actually had a discussion with this, uh, with him about this on the Bitcoin dev uh, IRC channel, is that it's just trying to set the costs in the protocol as similar as possible to the cost being borne by the users, the people running the nodes. And that way, uh, as long as they're earning a reasonable profit, you know, attacks just aren't economical. If, they, if somebody comes in and they attack, then nodes can increase their capacity and get paid for it. It's a, it's a, it's a simple idea, hard to implement, of course. Uh, and AJ wanted to just kind of uh, work through that idea, see how it would apply in practice. And in doing so, he found an old email that he had written but not sent to a thread from a couple of years ago about charging uh, two sets of fees in the network. The, the first set of fee would be a forward commitment fee. So this means that the sender of the payment pays the fee forward to the following hops, to, to the, to the, through each hop on the route that he chooses. Um, that would be a very small fee to call, cover the cost of just processing an HTLC. So there's a little bit of cost that you bear. Uh, AJ was suggesting like one millisat, so a thousandth of a sat. It's just a, it's a very tiny value um, just to cover the small cost. And then the main cost in the channel jamming attack and also in just holding invoices open, which is something that people want to do sometimes, uh, is the you know, the, the cost of capital, it's having your funds locked up and not doing anything else productive for that time. So AJ wanted to have reverse hold fees because the person who receives an HTLC has the ability to jam it. So they would pay backwards along the route to the previous people. Uh, the challenge with this is that that's got to be based on time. And there is no there's no way to have a completely universal clock 
the blockchain does provide a clock that we all agree on, uh, but it's just box don't propagate at the same speed to the network. There's a lot of challenges there. Um, but yeah, forward, tiny forward commitment fees, and then a backwards fee going from receiver towards spender uh, for the amount of time it took to settle a payment on Lightning. Um, that would cover the cost of capital. Uh, those wouldn't be perfect, but they would cover some of the fundamental costs that Lightning nodes are faced with um, for routing payments and having payments delayed. So that was his basic idea. I believe we have Clara now. Clara, do you want to introduce yourself? And then we can work you into this discussion since you had some interaction on this particular mailing list post. So hi, I'm Clara. Uh, I work at Chaincode. Um, Yes, so we talked about this over the mailing list, and I think, as with many ideas that have to do with jamming, there's a lot of like basic ideas floating around, but you really need to put in the work and figure out all of the details. And personally, I'm not sure the details in the solution can be worked out. Maybe they can. You know, uh, it would be very, very relevant when we'll get to talking uh, about upfront fees and things like that. But that's mostly what the discussion was about. It was about the details. Um, yeah. So I don't know if anybody's planning to actually jump into this and work them out. But it seems that currently uh, that's not on the table. Merch or Dave, any other notables from this news item? before we move into other channel jamming discussion? I mean, I, I think Claire is absolutely right that uh, this is a really challenging thing to work out. Uh, this is a thread that AJ kind of brought back from two years ago. So two years have gone by, nobody has worked them out in that time. Um, I think the summary in, the, in this newsletter is AJ is just trying to say, he thinks this might be an interesting direction for research. He's not saying that anybody should be doing it right now, but it is an interesting direction that people might want to look at in the future. Uh, even though, even as we work right now to deploy easier solutions, uh, doesn't mean they're easy, they're just they're easier, like uh, reputation and stuff. Well, speaking of reputation, the next item in the newsletter for this week is HTLC endorsement testing and data collection. And so a Lightning node has channel liquidity, like we just spoke about, and also HTLC slots. And both of these resources are potentially vulnerable to attack from other members on the network. And channel jamming is the name of the attack that, that we're talking about in a previous item and also this one that could target those resources. Um, we've gone into the, the attacks uh, a bit in, in detail for Optech previously. So look for old podcast or newsletter entries on channel jamming. We also have a topic on, on channel jamming for more details. Luckily, we have researchers like Clara who have been working on mitigations to these channel jamming attacks. And one potential mitigation involves reputation systems. And one such system is called HTLC endorsement. And that's been set forth. And this week, we've actually added HTLC endorsement to Optex Topics Wiki. Um, Clara, maybe to start, can you explain HTLC endorsement and its relation to some of the previous local reputation discussions we've had previously? 
Sure. So just to give a general overview, the complete solution has two parts. And uh, there's the part that has to deal with reputation, which is the thing we'll focus on um, in this discussion. And then to complete behaviors that are not solved but reputa by reputation, but can be still considered as jamming, we'll probably also use some kind of a fee structure. Uh, but when we're talking about reputation, we want to focus on local reputation. That is, if each node looks at its neighbors and decides whether to allow them to use all of the HTLC slots or all of the liquidity, or do they get just a part of this? Okay, say half of the HTLC slots and half of the liquidity. And we do this because new neighbors uh, or neighbors that uh, didn't behave good before and other reasons, I don't want to allow them the full capacity of my channel because if I will allow them, they can easily jam me. So to, to build reputation, we expect the neighbors to send payments, the payments uh, to forward payments, the payments should resolve quickly, the payments should pay fees. There's like a whole list of what we consider a good behavior. And doing this, they gain a high reputation. And by gaining a high reputation, they unlock more privileges to use more slots and more liquidity. So this is the first part. And so this is the general behavior that we want. What we want to avoid is say, somebody sends me an HTLC and I don't trust them. I don't want to forward this HTLC and put my reputation at risk with my neighbor. That's why we have an endorsement. Endorsement is a way to tell my neighbor, here's an HTLC. Either I think it's fantastic, it's going to go through, please let me use all of the HTLCs that I'm allowed to use, or I cannot endorse it and say, listen, I don't know what it is, don't allow this HTLC to use the complete uh, slots and the complete liquidity. So this is the main idea behind endorsement. So based on an individual node's interaction with a peer, there's some sort of algorithm that then scores a particular peer and HTLCs that come from a peer can then be labeled by that node as endorsed or not. It's a binary thing, right? And then when you forward that along, you, you forward that, that binary flag along as an endorsement or not? Yes, exactly. And then when I receive something, I will flag it as endorsed if, first of all, I received it as endorsed, and second of all, if I trust the neighbor. And so this is all local. So if, if a peer or a neighbor is behaving well to, to me, I may endorse HTLCs coming from them. But if that same neighbor is, according to the algorithm, uh, abusing a different peer, then their HTLCs may not be endorsed. It's, it's all local, as in the, the local reputation and dependent on how you've interacted with that particular node, not some shared reputation. Yes, so the reputation of a node depends, the reputation I give a node only depends on their interaction with me. I don't know what else they're doing on the network. I don't know how they behave with their neighbors and so on. It's only based on the specific inter uh, interaction that the node can observe, that is, interactions with them. 
And so you have to collect this data in order to do analysis on it to determine the endorsement or not. And is that what we're talking about here with testing and data collection is just beginning to, to collect those pieces of information? So the first thing we want to do is to have a general sanity check of the algorithm, of the philosophy, of this whole solution. And this is what we're aiming to do. So we would like nodes to collect data and to run tests just to make sure we're on the right track. So this is the first phase. And then we will see how do the endorsements also propagate through the network. But the basic idea is to make sure that things work the way we think they work. For like our first priority is of course, so like in, in times of peace as it is right now, that nothing gets harmed. That's the last thing that we want uh, to see happening. Once we see that no harm is done, we also want to see that if indeed somebody decided to attack, the results would be as we expect them to be. And so it looks like you have some buy-in from the different Lightning node implementations. Um, and so they are sort of, I guess, pledging to put in code that will start collecting this local reputation data. Yes, yes. I think everybody agrees that we should do something about it before things get messy. Okay, so uh, assuming that uh, these changes are put into the different implementations, who would be the one collecting the data and contributing to some larger body of data to do the analysis? Is it just any node operator that, that sort of turns on a flag to, to log this data, or how, how would that work? So each node operator can choose uh, to, to collect the data. Um, later on, they can also decide to use it, to share it. Um, yeah, but this is really an opt-in thing. I really hope, and here's a call out to everybody, I do hope you will opt in because the more data we have, the better results and better algorithms we can uh, come up with. And so I'm collecting this as a node operator. I've opted in. Thank and you. I, oh, no, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I now have this pile of data. Uh, who do I send it to? And is that data going to be shared, the aggregated data going to be shared publicly for everybody to analyze or just researchers? Or how will that work? So we're working on the details right now to make sure we're doing this as carefully as possible. So, of course, we're involving you know people whose job is to work with data and figure things out. But the main idea currently is that you will run some local analysis and share with us some aggregated data. And only with researchers, we're definitely not going to make this data public at any point. There's also whichever data would be shared with us, there's some randomization and, and fuzzing that will be added on top of it. Uh, yeah, but we're planning to do this very, very, very carefully for, I assume, obvious reasons. Merch or Dave, do you have any comments or questions on the effort here? I just think it's great. All right. Merch gave the thumbs up. So I guess the, we've already gone through the call to action here, which is node operators once these uh, flags or, or these opt-in data collection metrics are available, can consider uh, collecting that data and providing it for research purposes. Anything else, Clara? I uh, know. Thank you. 
Thanks for taking the time to join us. Um, you're welcome to stay on, or, or you can drop a few other things you're working on. All right. Proposed changes to Bitcoin Core default relay policy is the next item from the newsletter. And Peter Todd started two threads and has two pull requests um, related to these potential policy changes uh, in default relay policy. The first one involves full RBF by default. Um, Peter, maybe you can talk uh, a little bit about how things are now and how you would like things to be with this default being changed. Yeah. Well, so uh, full RBF to recap simply means that you apply um, replace by fee rules to all transactions rather than transactions that have um, uh, sets the BIP 125 uh, flags. Um, and, you know, the, the number one rationale for this and really the reason why the mempool full RBF flag even exists on Bitcoin Core is that in multi-party transactions such as coin joins, um, you can cause a lot of trouble if people in your you know transaction double spend inputs to it um, at low free rates. And basically, long story short, the issue that causes is that if that's if that transaction cannot be replaced by the intended transaction, and that you know a low fee transaction gets to a large percentage of hash power, it can take a very long time to actually make forward progress in you know in your multi-party protocol because there's no easy way for you to determine whether or not a low fee double spend exists um, particularly for you know more decentralized coin join protocols where you're not relying on say a central coordinator and the thing that full rbf does is it just means that in nearly all cases either you know the low fee transaction gets replaced in which case you make forward progress in the expected amount of time or the low fee transaction, the low fee double spend isn't so low fee, it's actually the higher fee one, and thus it gets mined in a reasonable amount of time. And while the you know, coin join round or other multi-party round may fail, at least you've made forward progress because you can determine that failures happened and you can move forward and you know use other inputs and so on. So you know that's the clear rationale there. Um, there's a lot of other rationales such as just having BIP 125 in general makes life difficult for wallet authors. Um, you know, a lot of wallets lately have been removing the ability to opt out of transaction replacement at all because it just causes issues. You know, if users send transactions with low fees, their transactions get stuck. Well, what do you do? You know, there's no easy solution to that other than double spend with a higher fee. So, you know, that's caused a, a lot of issues. And of course, there's also a privacy concern there, given that BIP 125 does create one more way of distinguishing one wallet from another. But, you know, the, the, the multi-party one, I think, was the, was the main reason that full RBF got added. Now, in terms of adoption, um, I haven't measured it recently, but when I measured it in December of last year, it looks like roughly 20% of newly upgraded nodes had decided to turn on full RBF. And I suspect the number currently is lower than that, but it's it's a reasonable amount. And more importantly, a lot of nodes, um, or at least there's a sort of a core group of nodes that exist that use my full RBF peering patch, which ensures that full RBF nodes are connected to each other. And that peering patch means that there is at least some group that you know propagates full RBF transactions. And that means that the miners that have turned that on, which appears to be somewhere between maybe 30 to 40% of hashing power, um, 
they do mine full RBF replacements fairly frequently. And you know, this is relatively easy to see by the fact that my open timestamps calendars make full RBF replacements. And uh, no notably, I, I did um, change them recently to send the initial transaction with significantly, you know, fee rates significantly above the minimum uh, mempool limits to ensure that this is an accurate statistic. And, you know, Antpool in particular, and as well as Binance Pool, they're mining this stuff all the time. So, you know, I think we have very good evidence that they have, in fact, turned this on. And I suspect the reason they've done this, of course, is because Binance has a habit of doing consolidation transactions um, with RBF off. And they've had issues there where these consolidation transactions get stuck. And people pointed out that it looks like they've been double spending their own consolidation transactions just to move them along faster. So, you know, there's an obvious use case for them. And when you have your own mining pool, you can do things like this. So, you know, that's uh, I think that's kind of your background. And as for why would I want to turn this on? Well, obviously, you might as well go and get these benefits for everyone. And I don't think there's a valid argument against it right now. So that's, you know, I think that sums it up. In terms of arguments against it, um, maybe more generally, how, how would you classify the reception from the community to the PR and the mailing list post? Well, I, I think in general, like there's a real, I mean, one way I could almost put it is apathy towards this, which is what you'd expect because the reality is, you know, essentially everyone assumes that a transaction is unconfirmed until it confirms. You know, I, I, there's been a small vocal minority of people making a big issue about this. But when you actually ask them to provide examples of merchants that actually depend on the, you know, first, the so-called first seen behavior um, that, you know, Bitcoin Core defaults to, they can't come up with examples. You know, we have Gap 600, which has made claims that they have a bunch of merchants, but they refuse to provide actual examples of these merchants actually accepting unconfirmed transactions as valid. You know, and this this is like this has been going on for months. I keep on pressuring them to provide actual examples, and they just refuse to do so. And frankly, my suspicion is that they don't actually have real examples of this, and are pulling some kind of shady business where they make promises to people that the service works, and then don't actually deliver. Merch or Dave, do you have any thoughts on enabling mempool full RBF by default in Bitcoin Core? Yes, many. <laughs> um, so I guess I first have to broadly agree that unconfirmed transactions are unreliable. They're more of a payment promise uh, than a reliable uh, form of settled payment or anything like that. So if I could travel back in time, I think I would definitely allow uh, replaceability from the get-go and hopefully we would avoid this whole opt-in business or perhaps if we had a flag at least the default would be replaceability and people could opt out and signal finality that would have probably uh, reduced a lot of the pinning behavior and other research topics that we've been talking about uh, quite a bunch but um I think in the merging of mempool full RBF last year, we, we also saw and learned that quite a few people regard the signaling of finality as a social signal, as in, I don't intend to make a replacement for this transaction. And that has uh, tempered my enthusiasm a little bit for 
pushing mempool full RBF uh, very hard. I also don't really see that many issues in production right now. Um, I don't know. I I think I would probably give it a little more time and wait a little longer to see if perhaps some more measurements and if it's really been adopted sufficiently, then we can still turn it on in a later release, not necessarily this one yet. Dave? Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but sorry, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but we basically um, are going to have one more release in roughly a month. And then the next one after that is follows, you know, what, six, nine months or something like that afterwards. So, you know, I'd say perfectly reasonable thing to do would be just merge this in like a month and a week. Um, so it would hit the release after the next one. Yeah, the future freeze for the next release is in October. Uh, the next release is probably expected in November or uh, early December. And then the one after that would be in May, June next year. Sounds good to me. I would, I would echo Merch uh, on the, and, and Peter, and pretty much anybody reasonable on the idea that unconfirmed transactions are not final. Don't accept them as final. Uh, that's 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 full stop there. Um, I'd also kind of echo Merch that my enthusiasm for this is tempered. I, you know, if you had asked me two years ago, I would have been like, absolutely, let's do this. It's time. Let's go in. Um, I am not as convinced as Pete by the argument that this severely affects CoinJoin. We've we've had a discussion on the mailing list about this. Um, uh, you know, I think that's just a difference of opinion there. I do think it, I should clarify my remark. It absolutely does affect multi-party transactions such as CoinJoin's in a few limited cases. I don't think the damage is significant. I think that's where Peter and I disagree um uh, i i was kind of surprised when we had the discussion last year about adding the flag at all to bitcoin core uh by some of the there were some interesting marks by uh, suhas daftoir about um if we designed relay policy from scratch uh, right now, we might have an interest in non-replaceability for the sake of keeping the uh, implementation simple. Uh, not, not that this would be the default policy, it would be an opt-in policy for non-replaceability, uh, just because you don't have to deal with a lot of uh, pinning vectors and stuff if you do that, because your only option then is to uh, child page for parent uh, if you want to fee bump. Uh, I think that's a very interesting idea intellectually. In practice, my guess is that we're eventually going to enable this flag by default, and so maybe we should just rip the Band-Aid off. I don't know. I, I, I mean, so... For RBF versus child pays for payment, I take, you know, but well, but well, actually, so here, I'll start by first of all saying, I don't think we're actually in disagreement about how bad this is for things like CoinJoin. Um, I would rate this as sort of a moderate issue for CoinJoin. I don't think this is a, you know, something that ends them because if it was something that completely made the idea non-viable, we probably would have seen more attacks already. 
um, you know, including like deliberate ones. We just didn't. You know, we, we this has happened quite a few times, probably by accident. And for the individual coin join, it's a real nuisance. But it's not something that people have spent a lot of effort, um, uh, you know, a lot of effort attacking. Although a counter argument to that might have been because we have had miners running full RBF for, you know, almost a year now for sure. And probably even a bit longer than that. So maybe we just didn't see those attacks because, in fact, you know, a small percentage of miners running full RBF is enough to mitigate them. You know, I could be wrong on that too. But I think, in general, like I just, I, I think we're closer in agreement on the severity of it. And my main argument is overall, this is beneficial. And I just think the value of having non replaceability is very low. And you know, where I think we do disagree is RBF versus child papers for parents. I think child pays for parents is definitely the inferior way of doing things. And I think RBF is definitely underused in protocols like Lightning and other situations where it would have been very easy to pre-sign multiple transactions at different fee rates and just broadcast them as necessary. You know, the fact is like storage and bandwidth is reasonably cheap compared to on-chain space. And child phase for parents is just the more expensive way of doing things. And certainly going into the future, I think it's going to matter even more. And we'll probably actually see protocols like Lightning getting redesigned and tweaked in ways to use RBF more aggressively. I think in the interest of time, we'll move on to the second of the two threads that you started on the, the mailing list and associated pull request, which is uh, removing specific limits around op return outputs. So right now, their you know, Bitcoin Core will not, by default, relay or take into the mempool any transaction that has more than one op return output or any op return output that has more than 80 bytes of data associated with it. Um, Peter, maybe you can talk to a little bit about um, why it's a good idea to drop this standardness rule or, or relax it. Um, what, what the benefits it, it, would be that? And I'll point out there's also one other um, uh, thing that you missed there, which is the current rules do not distinguish between op return outputs that actually carry data and ones that don't. And you know, even though the this standardness rule is about preventing data from being included in transactions, bare op return outputs that don't carry any data at all are also affected. Um, for instance, you can't have more than you know one of them in a transaction. Um, it also if you you know, seemingly turn off op return data to zero, it actually prevents non-data carrying op returns as well, which I don't think really is intended behavior. But anyway, that's, you know, that's just sort of a quibble. But um, yeah, more generally, I mean, so where this came from is um, Chris Allen for various identity related things and so on. He identified a need for expanding, you know, for making use of op return in certain scenarios with more than 80 bytes. Um, the 80 bytes is a limit that was set up when Opperturn, the whole Opperturn mechanism was adopted to begin with. And, uh, you know, this point of fact, um, I'm the guy who is responsible for Opperturn existing at all. I mean, I identified a need for this many, many years ago and suggested that we add this as a consensus rule that script pub keys starting with Opperturn, which are provably unspendable because the first thing that happens in the script execution is the op return is seen and then Im that immediately fails the script. So we know that they cannot be spent. And unlike other unspendable outputs, op return outputs are never even added to the UTXO set to begin with. 
which um, you know certainly has has advantages if you do not intend to spend an output. Um, but then the standard niche rule of only allowing 80 bytes worth of uh, data, or to be exact, 83 bytes worth of script data, including the push-off codes and so on. You know, that's something that was um, added by others um, when this was actually merged to Bitcoin Core. Um, and, you know, like I said, Christopher Allen identified a need for more than that for certain types of transactions. He was willing to put up a thousand bucks to, you know, put in a few hours of work and uh, get the pull request done. And, you know, I agree that this is sort of a paternalistic limit. I don't think it really makes sense to have when there's so other so many other ways of publishing data. You know, in certain cases, doing it off return makes sense. In other cases, it may make sense in other ways, but it just seems silly to have this one sort of remaining paternalistic um, limit in standardness rules. Now, I don't know if you're aware, but the pull request has been closed due to a flood of, I think, very poorly and you know technically formed uh, commenting about it. So I kind of agree with that. I don't think it's going to get merged. But, you know, if you have a reason to need this, um, the thing I would tell people designing applications is you should have fallback mechanisms that don't use off return. Um, you know, and the more these kinds of applications get used, maybe this issue will get revi um, revisited in the future. And if not, well, you know, make sure you have fallback mechanisms. One comment from a developer was saying something along the lines of removing these restrictions that you're talking about removing could potentially open up additional transaction pinning vectors. Do you have any more details on what was meant there? Yeah, well, um, you know, for the audience, um, so transaction pinning um, just refers to mechanisms that make it difficult to uh, replace transactions. And like where this hypothetically could come from is maybe if you know, your node doesn't see the op return transaction that is pinning your, you know, the transaction you're trying to replace. And, you know, yeah, that can kind of be a concern, but like the space of things that allow that is quite broad. So I don't think that's a concern that's really specific to op return. I think that's just a concern in general. And I think you're better off designing mechanisms where or, well, designing protocols where this really isn't an issue. And, you know, an example where that might be true is um, like, you know, lightning channel things um, are an example where, you know, you might want to use replace by fee to replace transactions, get it to uh, make progress faster, right? Suppose you have like multi-party um, channel opening as an example, and your counterparty is trying to lock up your funds by preventing that transaction from confirming. And maybe they accomplish this with, you know, an opportun or some other mechanism that you just can't see to make it hard for your fee bumps to increase. Well, you know, like I say, any, you know, any difference in relay policy potentially exposes you to this. And you probably just want to, in general, design the protocol to be robust to not seeing why a transaction isn't getting replaced. And, you know... I, I kind of rate this as relatively low. Um, and for things where it really matters, like a good example would be the, um, uh, I forget the right term, the lightning commitment transactions where, you know, you're, you're trying to get a state in an adversarial situation. You know, I kind of got to ask, well, surely we should be using things like CSV and whatnot to make pinning not an issue to begin with. You know, I think that's a much better approach. And using that in conjunction with, say, RBF, where you've pre-signed a bunch of transactions at different fee rates to cover all eventualities, I'd say that's a better approach. 
then hoping that pinning is not an issue in trying to design mechanisms, you know, more related to that. So, you know, that's kind of my view on it, but uh, I know other people disagree. And also, you know, my part, I mean, I got to go write up more about uh, my viewpoint on RBF versus uh, child pace for parent there. So, you know, that's on me too. Dave, Merch, um, aren't we just putting data in the witness these days? What do you, what do you think about relaxing the upper turn limits? Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this a bit this week. So um, I I, uh, I oppose this change, actually. And my opposition comes from two observations, or maybe three. One is, uh, I don't think that we should encourage further use of the Bitcoin blockchain as a data publication mechanism. We do have enough room for a hash if people want to publish something and timestamp it into the blockchain, they can hash it, publish it elsewhere, and per the hash in the blockchain, prove that it existed. I mean, that's basically what Peter does with open timestamps, right? No, it's not. I mean, you're talking about different applications there, though. Timestamping and data publishing are very different things. And one does not replace the other. You've talked a lot already. I can talk now, yeah? Um. So I don't think that the blockchain is good for publishing data. I don't think that we need to encourage that further. It makes it cheaper to publish data up to 135 bytes. It makes it widely more accessible to publish data. I think that uh, the arguments that I have seen what it should be used for uh, don't really seem that huge of a benefit to me personally. You can disagree with that. And uh, therefore, just because other mechanisms have been discovered by which you can publish data doesn't mean that we should open up more avenues to do so, A. And B, um, for example, we can skip witness data during the IBD if we're running a prudent node anyway already, which we can never do for up return data. So there is um, ways that witness data does not affect us that up return data does. And uh, so I, I just don't really see huge benefits. I do see some small downsides. And um, we've had this rule forever. It doesn't, doesn't seem to bother a lot of people. So I think it's fine to keep it. Now you can respond if you want. Well, I mean, so I, I just want to make clear with this. Uh, it really bothers me how people present timestamping as a solution to these kind of problems. Because, I mean, you're welcome to go say that Bitcoin should not be used for publication, but it really annoys me to see people mislead people by saying, no, no, timestamping is good enough. Now, the answer could very well be that, well, we just don't want your use case to work. And ideally, we would make your use case not work. But to go tell people that something else provides the same benefit is, I think, just wrong. And, you know, we shouldn't mislead people that way. You know, we should be honest to them about what Bitcoin is or isn't capable of doing. Now... And it's also, I think it's interesting how I think you're the only person, well, I mean, maybe maybe not in general, but like in the GitHub discussion around that pull request, no one actually brought up what you just mentioned about, um, you know, initial block download with witness data versus non-witness data. So I, th I think it kind of says something about the low quality of discussion we had, that that obvious points never actually got mentioned. And, you know, I personally don't agree with that, but, you know, you... You certainly are being smart to go bring that up, and it's just something that never happened in that pull request. But you know, 
uh, when you look at it from the point of view of the people using this, I mean, like, like I said before, I think it just makes more sense for them to design things that have alternate mechanisms of publishing. And, you know, you can reap most of the benefits of op return, which tends to come down to um, SPV proofs, because going through witness data involves going through Coinbase transactions, which have unboundedly large size, which is quite a problem for certain types of um, publication uh, mechanisms. Um, you know, I'll point out this is actually why Open Timestamps does not uh, timestamp data via witnesses because pre-taproot there wasn't a good way to go do that that didn't involve going through the Coinbase transaction, which can be arbitrarily big. Um, Post-taproot there is one mechanism that can do this, although it's a bit risky. But pre-taproot that wasn't uh, really possible. So. But anyway, I mean, I, I think the bigger picture is, you know, this pull request was closed because it's not likely to get merged. And, you know, I don't I don't think it's, uh, you know, it's it's good for people designing these types of things to assume standardness rules will be set in any way beneficial to them. Dave, any commentary on this? OK, well, if. Any of the listeners are interested in this type of discussion around policy, like these two points that Peter has brought up today. Um, there's some philosophical and uh, other discussion about relay policy and mempool in our Waiting for Confirmation series, which is aggregated as a blog post on the BitcoinOps.org website. So dig into that if some of this discussion is perking your interest. Peter? Thanks for joining us. Uh, you're welcome to get back to your, your beautiful scenery. I'm glad your connection held up and you sounded pretty good. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And uh, credit goes to silent.link for the um, digital whatever SIM card or whatever that actually made all this work. So uh, thanks to them. And uh, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Next section from the newsletter involves a select Bitcoin Core PR Review Club PR. And this month, we've selected Silent Payments Implement BIP 352, which is a PR by Josie, who has joined us. Josie, you missed the introduction, so maybe you can do uh, a quick introduction for folks, and then we can jump into some of the details here. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me, too. Um, so for introductions, I'm Josie. I work on Bitcoin Core pretty much full-time as a contributor, um, have done stuff around the wallet and some other things. And for the past uh, eight months or so, I've been working on silent payments with Ruben Thompson. Um, silent payments was a proposal he came up with, I think around March, 2022. Um, and then I heard him give a presentation on it, got really excited about it and decided to help write the BIP. And then, so we worked on that for, several months. And then I started working on an implementation for core, which was based off uh, a PR that a pseudonymous developer uh, W0XLT had opened. And so I've been I've been working on that for a while to kind of keep it up to date with the BIP. And so um, the PR review club we just did is kind of the ready for prime time version of that PR. So we, we've broken it up into the first part, which is what we reviewed on the PR review club, which just implements the protocol from the BIP. And then I've also opened a sending and a receiving PR that are both based on that PR. So that was longer than just an introduction. <laughs> no, that's good. We're, we're, we're jumping into it. Okay. So there's the, there's sort of this parent or tracking PR for silent payments progress. 
And I guess I should note that that is specific to Bitcoin Core. And um, I, I guess there would ideally also be work for other wallets who wanted to implement silent payments as well. It, it looks like you're focusing first right now on, on the Bitcoin Core implementation and then potentially in the future other wallets. Yeah, maybe it's worth saying a few things about that. So we've been working on two things concurrently, which is one, the BIP. And maybe for those that are less familiar, that this is an application layer BIP, uh, meaning it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with consensus. It's just tech, a technical spec for how wallets could implement this protocol, which is silent payments. Um, the, I think we, we spoke about you know, the BIP itself several months back when we first opened that PR to the BIPs repo uh, here on the OPSEC recap. And since then, the BIP has gone through several rounds of very thorough review. And just I'll take a second here to give a huge shout out to all the people who have contributed to that review. It's been super helpful. And there's not been really many changes on the protocol itself. We've made a few refinements since then, like changing the format of the address and a few other tweaks. But I would say I'm feeling pretty confident that the BIP is settled. Like, So if you wanted to go out and start implementing silent payments today in your wallet, you could do that. Um, reasonably safe. And, and we've split it up so that sending is much easier to implement than receiving. So my hope is that as the bit kind of settles and we refine the wording and add more test vectors, people can start implementing sending and receiving support in their wallets. And then because I'm more familiar with Core, that's where I'm going to focus, getting it into the Bitcoin Core wallet. So what that'll look like is if and when those PRs get merged, you'll be able to um, get a silent payment address for your Bitcoin Core wallet, which means that you'll be able to send to other silent payment addresses and you'll also be able to receive uh, silent payments to the Bitcoin Core wallet. But yeah, very much, you know, this is a wallet protocol, so it becomes more useful the more wallets that implement it. And we tried to learn from what happened with Taproot, um, where it's really important for adoption that people can send to and parse silent payment addresses. You might not care about receiving silent payments, but if you see a, you know, if I, if I want to receive them and I post my silent payment address, but nobody's wallet can send to it, it's, it's not going to be that useful. So we put a lot of time into making sure that sending is, is really, really simple. And so my hope is that even while we're still working on this PR for core, which implements the full thing that other wallets can pick up and start implementing sending support. You mentioned our discussion previously. Um, we had, in the recap 255 newsletter, we had Ruben Thompson and Josie on discussing the draft bit for silent payments. So if you're curious about a high level discussion, maybe jump back and, and listen to, to that segment. Um, without, I know we're a little bit off of the this core PR that we've selected for the newsletter, but I, I do have a quick question since we're on the topic of other, other wallets and libraries. Um, uh, your focus on Bitcoin Core, getting this in Bitcoin Core functionality and, and also in, in the wallet. Um, is there a plan in the future to have something like we covered recently? There's like a pay join development kit that is separate from the Bitcoin development kit for folks to integrate pay join into their wallet. Is, is that something that would be planned in the future or would that be a, a different team sort of taking initiative there? Yeah, I, I mean... Absolutely. I think the, the right way to encourage wallet adoption is make it as easy as possible for people. I mean, we're all we're all busy. Some of us are just doing this for 
the love of the ecosystem. So it's very difficult to, you know, I would never want to be in the position where I'm going to some open source project and being like, hey, you know, we came up with this new thing. Can you take time off from whatever you're busy with to implement, you know, my thing? And so after the Bitcoin Corp PR, I'd really like to focus on what are the popular wallets, uh, SDKs that people are using and how can we make it easy to integrate silent payments there? The really cool thing is, and, th and this is just, I mean, it's been very humbling and kind of blown me away. Uh, people have approached us and been like, hey, this seems cool. How can we help out? So there's been a group of developers um, that were working on a stealth address development kit. And so they were like, hey, we'd like to include silent payments in that. So we've been working with them. Um, there's another developer who approached me and said, this seems really cool. I'd like to do an implementation in Rust um, with the view that this Rust crate could then just be imported to Rust projects and use silent payments. And so the goal there would be we have this Rust crate that implements the protocol, not like a full wallet, but just the silent payments protocol. And then that could be included into something like BDK. So then any wallet that uses BDK as their SDK would get silent payments there. Um, we've been working on JavaScript implementation. So I think, yeah, just focusing on getting libraries out there that people can use makes it much easier to approach wallets and be like, is this something you're interested in? Here's the tooling. We've got test vectors, et cetera. Um, for me, you know, I certainly, I, I know Bitcoin Core Wallet. I can maybe hack my way around Rust, but you don't want me running around and implementing stuff in JavaScript. So my approach on that is going to be, how can I document how can I make as many test vectors as I can so that it's as easy as possible for you, the wallet developer, to come pick this up and implement it in your language of choice. Um, I mean, I guess we'll, we'll see how things develop once, you know, once we have it in Bitcoin Core, I think um, it's a lot more like that's the right time to start marketing and advocating for it and talking to wallet developers. And like I said earlier, so far, I've been just really humbled and blown away by how people have approached us and, and shown interest in this because, you know, of course, I think silent payments are cool and like Ruben thinks it's cool and you spend a lot of time working on something and then you put it out there and you're like, I hope other people think this is cool. And so far, it seems like there's been some enthusiasm about it. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty hopeful about wallet uptake and adoption. Back to the PR in question for the PR Review Club, which is 28122 that implements the logic for BIP 352, which is a silent payments BIP without any wallet code. So Josie, what is the non-wallet logic code that needs to be in core before you can put in the, the other two PRs that involve actual sending and receiving? Yeah, before, before I jump into that question, maybe it's worth mentioning, uh, this PR review club was the first in our new monthly format. So PR review club used to be once a week, now it's going to be once a month where instead of one meeting, we do two meetings. And the cool thing about that is it gives us more time to prepare the notes. It gives the people who want to attend the club more time to read and prepare. And then doing two days instead of just one, so two hours in total, it really allowed us to dig into the PR. So that's kind of a shameless plug for PR Review Club. Um, to, to the specific question, like what, what parts of sound payments don't involve wallet code? So I'd say that's really silent payments is at the base of it it's a protocol for how a sender and receiver can deterministically create a shared secret and so you know the sender creates a shared secret and then the receiver uses information already in the blockchain which is the pub keys present in the uh, inputs to a transaction to arrive at the same shared secret and that's how they can find this address 
that is unique to them. And so that first PR for core isn't really talking about like how we do it in the wallet, how we parse the address. And it's more just like, how do we make sure the right primitives are in core so that we can implement this protocol? So it's like, for example, uh, we sign the payments. We, we use the private keys of the UTXOs that you want to spend to do the Diffie-Hellman step. So we needed to add some functions in Bitcoin Core so that we could add private keys together. Um, for the receiver, they look at a transaction and they look at the public keys and then they want to add those public keys together to do the Diffie-Hellman step. So we needed to add some functions to Bitcoin Core for adding public keys. And then we added some functions that do the silent payments protocol and then those functions will then be used in later PRs in the actual wallet code. And kind of my reasoning for wanting to do it this way is it's, it's you know, to do it all at once is going to be a massive and complex PR. So we want to break it up into small chunks that people can reason about. And doing it this way also made it easier to test the Bitcoin core implementation against the test vectors on the BIP. Because now I don't really need to worry about like modeling things as UTXOs or trans transaction inputs and outputs. I just have this interface that accepts public and private keys and then spits out public and private keys. And then we can very easily test that core logic and then have more confidence in the later PRs when we build the wallet logic on top of it that we're implementing the protocol correctly. Okay, so this PR is for the non-wallet logic code. And, but, and this is referencing one of the review club questions. So why is this PR adding a bunch of code to the wallet directory then? Yeah, great question. Um, I think uh, at the end of the day, like I mentioned earlier, this is an application layer BIP uh, and it's a protocol for wallets to communicate with each other. So when we're talking about code separation and organization of Bitcoin Core, we like to keep these things as modular as possible. So it's kind of easy to reason about what's going on in the code base, the safety and whatnot. And so since silent payments is just going to be strictly used for wallets, like you generate an address, you want to send to that address, it's all happening in wallet software. We wanted to organize that code under the wallet directory. Um, we, we had some good discussion about that too, of like, well, is that really the best scenario or is that really the best place for the code? And can you think of an example where we might want to use silent payments logic outside of uh, the wallet context? And one example that was brought up the PR Review Club is, well, yeah, like I could have a Bitcoin core node that is scanning for silent payments, but not actually using them in the wallet. And they're scanning for silent payments in order to hand them off to a light client. So the light client doesn't have access to the blockchain, but the light client wants to receive silent payments. They can have a Bitcoin core node doing the scanning for them, collecting that tweak data that they need, and then passing it off to the, the, the client to do the actual protocol and you know, drive the outputs. And so in that case, yeah, maybe you do want some silent payments code to live outside the wallet so that I could compile Bitcoin Core, don't compile it with the wallet, but just have it running and scanning for silent payments. There were some questions in the PR Review Club about um, versioning and compatibility. Um, I, I invite everybody to look at all the questions, including the ones we highlighted in the newsletter and not just the ones that I'm choosing to ask here. Um, but maybe for folks to wrap their head around versioning, Maybe you could give an example of what would a potential example um, improvement, version improvement to silent payments be that, so we can wrap our minds around like what versioning of silent payments even means. Yeah, I, I think versioning is this, this really interesting question of like versioning is a beast, right? And it, I think I might, I don't know if you caught this part, but it basically boils down to how can we 
future proof and predict the future. So, so one example that comes up in, in, in silent payments, we pick a subset of script pub key types that will be used for this shared secret derivation step. Um, but let's, let's imagine in the future, we soft fork in some new output type end root. And now there's, you know, tap root and batch 32. And now there's this new output type int root. And we want to also include that in this shared secret derivation step. What we would do is we would release a silent payment version uh, one, because we're on version zero now. So we'd have a silent payments versions V1. And V1 would say, hey, if you're sending and you're sending to a V1 address and you want to spend these int root outputs, it's, it's fine to include them. And the receiver will recognize that this is a V1 transaction and they'll include those int root outputs um, in the shared secret derivation. So that's one example that we thought of that um, I think helps us be pretty resilient to soft forks in the future without really needing to change stuff. Another example would be um, maybe we want to add more data to the silent payment address, some metadata. Um, kind of a contrived example I thought of was with silent payments on the BIP when we're talking about light clients. In theory, if we assumed this like perfect you know, private peer-to-peer uh, -peer messaging protocol, you can imagine that the receiver, instead of scanning for silent payments, could just get a notification from you, the sender. Like the, you, the sender, crack the silent payment, and then you encrypt it, a message with the TX ID or something, and you encrypt it to their silent payment address using the pub keys, and then you send them this notification, they decrypt it, and they're like, oh yeah, someone sent me a silent payment. And then they get that without having to scan the chain. And this is okay because they can always fall back to scanning the chain if the notifications are missed or censored unreliable. So one idea I had was, okay, well, yeah, if you know this, this perfect peer-to-peer -peer messaging protocol doesn't exist today, but if it does, then maybe the receiver wants to put a hint in their silent payment address that says, hey, by the way, I accept notifications and I want them over this protocol. Like let's say it's simplex or something. And so they put some little byte or two in the address. And so that would be an example of a, a future version where if I'm a V0 silent payment sender, I'd read their address and I don't understand anything about notifications because I'm still using the V0 portion of the protocol. So I just ignore those extra bytes, send them a silent payment, and they would find it by scanning the chain. But if I'm a V1 and I do support it, notifications, I read that address, I'm like, oh, th this receiver accepts notifications, so I'm going to go ahead and send them a notification as well. So that gives an example of like one where the shared secret derivation part might change, and then there's an example where just like the protocol might change. Thanks for walking through that, Josie. Um, I, I think I heard one potential call to action for the audience here, which is folks who are technically capable and potentially working on wallet or library software and are interested in pursuing silent payments in their wallet or service, they can reach out to you and, and coordinate on um, any questions that they may have in their implementation. Is there anything else that you'd call for the audience to do other than review these, these PRs that are currently open? Yeah, I would say if, if you're someone who works on and reviews Bitcoin Core, we'd love to have your review on the PRs that are open. So that that uh, PR that we went over in the review club, I think that's one the one that I would love to have the most attention on right now because I think it's the most ready. Um, and the other two that I've written for sending and receiving will also depend on it. Uh, and then, like you said, if, if you're in the broader ecosystem and you work with wallets or you're, you're in contributing to and involved with wallet projects, and this is a protocol that you're interested in want to implement, please reach out. I'd, I'd love to 
help in any way I can. And, and also, you know, having these people like these, you know, bleeding edge first movers who come and want to start implementing this has really helped us a lot because they've had great commentary. Like if you go to the BIP, you can see a ton of comments from a few people who've started to implement it. And they're like, hey, by the way, you know, think about this test. And I found this edge case. And maybe you want to think about that. And it's a really like, I mean, code is what matters. So people implementing this is really what gives us confidence that we have a good, solid and robust protocol. Um, so yeah, feel free to reach out. I'd love to see people just tackling sending, you know, like pretty much every mobile wallet today could implement sending fairly trivially. Um, and that would do a lot to make the, the case for adoption. So if that's something that you're interested in, I'd, I'd love to chat. Thanks for joining us, Josie. You're welcome to drop a few of other things you do and you can hang out with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always, always fun to join these and have a chat. Next segment from the newsletter is releases and release candidates, of which we have one, BDK 0.28.1. It includes a bug fix and also adds a taproot descriptor template, BIP 86. And so with that feature change, users can now, if you're a BDK user and you upgrade to 28.1, you can now create taproot descriptors with templates. Bitcoin Core 27746. Simplifying the relationship between block storage and the chain state objects. Merch, I think you're better equipped for explaining this one than I am. Do you want to take a crack at it? I'll take a crack at it. So um, Assume UTXO, of course, is a project where we try to be able to serve a snapshot of the UTXO set. And then in the background have a full node on the one hand, start synchronizing the rest of the chain tip from the UTXO set snapshot. And in the background also to verify that the UTXO set snapshot was accurate uh, by syncing the whole blockchain in the background. And from my understanding, this PR lays the groundwork for being able to have two separate UTXO states in Bitcoin Core, where one, of course, would be the one starting from the snapshot and heading towards the chain tip, and the other one is starting from the Genesis block and heading to the UTXO snapshot. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I know about it. So some foundational assume UTXO work. Uh, Dave? Actually, I, I just want to add some clarification here. I think we actually have, for about a year and a half now, actually had the ability to have two separate chain states in Bitcoin Core uh, for the Assume UTXO project. What this PR does, as I understand it, is it uh, changes the logic related to how we store blocks. Um, so currently, the decision made to store blocks by Bitcoin Core on disk, which is a it's a, it's a denial of service factor. Like if somebody can just send you random junk data that looks like blocks and you store it to your disk, you can eventually run out of space. Uh, so what this uh, PR does is removes some of the chain state logic that was in that decision loop to store blocks. So previously the decision made to store blocks, you had to check the chain state to see, for example, if that block connected to a previous block. Um, and now a lot of that logic has been removed. So you don't actually need as much chain state in order to decide whether to store a block. Uh, and that's just, it's, it's really good for separation of concerns in the code 
so that you're not pulling that in. So it's, it's really good if you have these two separate chain states that you can do this logic separately. That's all it does. Thanks for clarifying, Dave. Next two PRs are to the Core Lightning repository, 6376 and 6475, which implement a plugin called Renee Pay. And luckily, we have uh, an author that contributed to these PRs here, Eduardo. Eduardo, do you want to introduce yourself and then you can explain Renee Pay? Okay. Uh, hello, everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. All right. So, um, so I started working on Rene Pay uh, from a theoretical point of view in 2021. And uh, sorry, in 2022, this was an idea from a paper of a, uh, Rene Picard of 2021. Um, uh, the idea is to um, let's say, put, uh, propose a new pavement algorithm for the Lightning Network. Um, just to, to give you an idea of what's, what's the current state, um, right now, when you want to try a payment on the network, you will, you will uh, solve um, um, like a, a path. Um, you will search for, for a path with a minimum cost of fees in the network in order to, to forward uh, the payment from, from the source to the destination. Uh, but usually, th these kind of payments will fail because of there is lack of liquidity uh, in the channels uh, along this path. So, um, with Renepay, we have a, a model of the of the network in which we like define this, the state as uh, some kind of um, it's a Bayesian model. Uh, so, the, the state of the network is not. Uh, um, a certain value of the liquidity in, in each channel, but uh, but uh, a probability distribution of on the liquidity. And uh, as a first approximation, we use a probability distribution which is uh, uniform. So, for example, if you're if there is a channel which does not belong to us, it belongs to some other nodes. We don't know what, where the liquidity is, but uh, it has a capacity of a capacity of three million sats. Then we say that initially. Uh, this uh, probability distribution would be a uniform distribution from zero to three million sats. And once we send a payment uh, that includes that uh, channel, if the payment uh, it goes through, then we know that the channel has had, when we send it, at least the capacity, uh, the, the liquidity to forward the payment that we have. So we update the knowledge of. Uh, of the state of that channel, so that's why it's called Bayesian because because we update this knowledge uh, every time we interact with the network. So at the end, um, we make use of these uh, multi-part multi-path uh, payments, and, uh, and and if you if you if you think of it, uh, uh, if you make um, many, if you divide your payments in, into many paths. You have uh, you are decreasing the probability of your payment going because you are like exposing yourself to more risk of uh, finding uh, um, uh, channels with, with less liquidity than, than the but at the same time you are like diminishing the amount of uh, liquid of, uh, liquidity that, that you are asking for each of these paths. So uh, the algorithm tries to find a sweet spot between making like many in many paths and with with uh, with a low liquidity, uh, so in order to increase the reliability of each uh, payment trial. Um, 
Uh, but as, as a matter of fact, it's, it's not, uh, this is, was just a, a simplistic way of putting it. At the end, we, we, there is a more robust uh, um, way to solve this problem, which is uh, make use of uh, minimum, co minimum cost flows algorithms in which we consider um, a, a cost function that is related to, to the probability of a forward payment, given the amount that we want to forward. And the cost in fees that this payment is going to is going to, to cost for the for the person who's who's sending the payments. Um, so right now this this uh, plugin uh, is going to is, is is already merged into core lining. Um, it, it surely has a lot of bugs because we just it's just in, in its infancy. This was the result of three months of work. Uh, my, my first contribution to core lining, as a matter of fact, and um, that there are many things to, to try. Um, there is also there is the possibility that uh, this uh, this plugin uh, uh, is very inefficient because we haven't tried like in many different uh, main cost flow solvers. But uh, but at least this is the first trial, and um, is is a candidate for the future payment. Uh, Algorithm for for the Lightning Network. Um, something more to add, I guess. Um, what what promises is that uh, with with the with the usual with the usual payment algorithm, you had sometimes many many uh, failures to to try to deliver a payment, and after a certain time, you would just stop trying. Um, but with this RFA, uh, you can uh, you you can. Put a limit on how many trials you want to have, or or how much time you want to wait for it. But theoretically, you can deliver um, because this this algorithm hit, and once you start running it, uh, he by himself start discovering more where, where the liquidity is allocated along along the network from from the source to the destination. So in theory, you can forward as much. Um, as much uh, amount of, of sets as the as the actual max flow you can you can actually deliver and um, well that's pretty much a summary of what Rene pays. If you have any questions, I'm glad to answer. Well, it sounds like there's some some work to be done, potential bug fixes, maybe performance improvements. Um, so I'm sure you have your hands full there. Are you aware of any of the other uh, Lightning implementations working on something like Rene Pay? Uh, okay, so um, I think it was like six months, six to seven months ago. I I know of uh, um, Carson Otto was working on um, on on his own. Uh, it's like a some sort of a plugin for for LND. It was called Manage J. I don't, I don't remember exactly, but but there is, there is a discussion on the on the Linux uh, on the Linux forum. Uh, that's the only implementation that I know that precedes uh, the one in core lining. So we we are like at the, right at the beginning. Dave or Merch, do you have any questions or comments about Renate? Oh, I just wanted to to answer your previous question that uh, LDK also merged an implementation very close to. Uh, uh, Renee and Richter's original description. I did that about a few months ago. We covered that in the newsletter, I believe. Okay, great. I, I kind of wanted to um, repeat something that I'm not sure was super clear. So the way that this um, payment planning algorithm works is that it 
tries, as Eduardo said, uh, to find a sweet spot between the count of parts on the multipath and the amount per path. And then whenever an attempt fails, it will learn uh, and update its model of the network for where the liquidity is available and not available in the lightning chart. So uh, with each attempt, it will, for example, if it cannot route X amount in a channel, it knows that X is too much, so it can change the assumed channel liquidity for that channel to zero to X, uh, the, the statistical, uh, I think it's the average or, or well, Rene can later correct me. <laughs> um, anyway, like the sweet spot between zero and X would then be picked as for the model, whereas previously it would have first assumed that about half of the capacity is on one side. So with each attempt, it, it learns. It's a Bayesian learning algorithm where it updates its model with each attempt, and that's why it very quickly finds an optimal route for the updated model. Okay, just, just let me clarify that. Um, once we try payment along the path, and there is a channel, that, uh, one of the channels that, that failed, because it cannot forward these six amounts, then we know we have we know for sure that every channel before that channel was able to forward it so we like uh, state this in our knowledge and and that channel that failed we also state in our knowledge of the fact that this liquidity is below x so if the liquidity distribution is a uniform function let's say at the beginning it will be zero to the capacity so it could be anywhere between zero and the capacity and there is a probability distribution function to, to describe this and once, once we know that uh, the liquidity is uh, less than x, the x, x minus 1, then we update the knowledge by changing this probability distribution from 0 to x minus 1. And uh, it, it now it sounds like very complicated, but it is just a, pro a uniform probability distribution, so it can be described by two numbers, uh, a and b, which are the bounds, the lower and the upper bounds of where the liquidity is. It's just two parameters for each channel. At the beginning, A is zero and B is the, the capacity. And once we start learning things about the channels, we update these two numbers. Uh, one, there is one detail, which is the fact that uh, as time goes by, uh, channels that we are not uh, that does, don't, does not belong to us, they they have movements in the in the liquidity because there is. The network is dynamical, and we don't know about about the, of the payments that are going out out there. So uh, there is a um, I, I propose a, a way to to like uh, forget the, the knowledge of where the liquidity is uh, with time. And right now it's linear, but it can be something else. It's just a proposal, but it's also something to think, to think about. Well, Eduardo, thank you for joining us. Um, Okay, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, thanks for walking us through that, and thanks for your work on Renee Pay. Next PR from the newsletter is Core Lightning 6466 and 6473, and this adds support for backing up and restoring a wallet in Core Lightning using Codex 32. So uh, there's actually an RPC called Get Codex Secret that will print out 
the formatted HSM secret in BIP93 format. And BIP93 is the Codex 32 BIP, which is the standard for backing up and restoring a master seed from an HD wallet using Shamir's secret sharing. And these changes also allow for restoring the LN node in Core Lightning from a similar 32-byte secret encoded as that same Codex 32 secret. And both of these are within the Lightning-HSM tool, which is the Core Lightning's way of interacting with HSM secrets in Lightning D or Core Lightning. Merch or Dave, anything to add there? Uh, well, I mean, I about this specific PR, I just, you know, I have nothing really to add. I do want to say that I think Codex 32 is really cool, and I'm really excited to see wallets starting to add support for it. It's going to be a long time until we have a lot of wallets supporting it, but I'm glad to see Core Lightning taking the first step. I also wanted to, uh, I got a message from Renee Picard, uh correcting my earlier comment about uh, LDK implementing uh, his system, so I just wanted to correct that. They implemented uh part of it they implemented a probabilistic model of liquidity but not the actual pathfinding algorithm or payment planning algorithm as i believe renee likes to call it so i want to correct that sorry thanks for clarifying renee and dave we have another pair of prs to core lightning core lightning 6253 and 5675 adding experimental support for Bolt 863, which is the draft spec for splicing. We had Dusty Damon on last week when we went through a bunch of other correlating PRs, and he spoke a bit about um, splicing in his work on it in our 262 recap podcast. So if you're curious about some of the details there, check out that podcast. We've also talked about splicing a few different times in the newsletter and on our, our recap here. Um, so, Mert, I'm not sure how much you want to get into it other than round of applause for rolling out more splicing-related work. Thumbs up from Merch. Next PR is to the Rust Bitcoin repository, 1945. This one's a little bit different. Um, it modifies the project's policies for how much uh, review that a pull request requires before it's merged, if that PR is just a refactoring PR. And they've changed their contributing markdown file uh, details and added a section that they call refactor carve output in the contributing file. And the, the relevant text there is, this repository is going through a heavy refactoring and trivial API redesign as we push towards API stabilization. As such, reviewers are either bored or overloaded with notifications. Hence, we have created a carve out to the two act rule I guess uh, traditionally they've had a two-act rule for the Rust Bitcoin project, and they have a carve-out here that states, a PR may be considered for merge if it has a single act and has sat open for at least two weeks with no comments, questions, or knacks. So I think that was the relevant segment from uh, the, the change in their policy. And we noted in the newsletter that other projects with challenges getting refactors may want to investigate Rust Bitcoin's new policy. Merch or Dave, any thoughts? I wanted to add that when I was a maintainer of a project, I really liked uh, kind of merge deadlines, uh, pretty similar to what they're doing here, which was that 
once something got a little bit of review, or even if the PR was opened by a maintainer who deemed the PR to be minor, uh, they would say, this is going to get merged on such and such date unless somebody complains. Um, and again, you still need to have somebody who knows the project and can say that this is safe. Uh, but as long as that's in place, I think a lot of this minor stuff can be dealt with. Uh, in a more simple way. And the time-based deadline just makes it clear to everybody what's going to happen and when it's going to happen so there's no surprises. And that's what you really want to be as a maintainer, is not surprise the people who are contributing to your project. So I thought this was just a uh, a good idea, and I was glad to see this project doing that. Last PR this week is to the Bolts repository, number 759, adding support for Onion message to the LN spec. And Onion messages allow... Uh, sending one-way messages across the Lightning Network using encryption and blinded paths. Onion messages are also used by the Bolt 12 offers protocol. Dave, maybe a question for you. Um, it seems like we've been talking about a lot, a lot about Onion messages for the last year plus um, in the newsletter and also on these recaps, but it wasn't even merged into the spec. What do, do you have insight into why that took so long? Um, I think they were waiting for, uh, there was some hold out there, I think, from LND. So, um, Lalu Usundaken, uh, roast beef, or Laulu, um, he was concerned, as we've covered in previous newsletters, that onion messages are subject to use. They're, they're free to send. Uh, they don't involve any money, any liquid, uh, lack of a capital. You can technically send them even if you don't have a channel with a node, although most implementations only allow you to send that to your direct peer. Um, so it's kind of just like an extra onion routing layer uh, over the internet. It's basically what Tor provides, and Tor has its own problems. Um, so he was concerned about message spam. Now, in previous news that we've addressed, I think I might link it here in the... Uh, uh, yeah, we have a link in this this newsletter to a previous newsletter, number 207, about some discussion about trying to solve that spam issue, um, that, that denial of service abuse, where people can just send messages for your node for free, uh, using up your bandwidth and your peers' bandwidth. Um, but like I said, there was some concern there. And so they wanted to make sure it was safe. Everybody wanted to discuss it until the point where everybody was relatively okay and uh, i think that they finally got to that point but before that point it needed to be implemented and people have been building stuff on top of it most notably uh bolt 12 um uh, the offers protocol so i'm excited to see this merged um and to, i'm really excited to see offers for those curious about some of the tech that we just talked about we have off-tech topic entries for onion messages, blinded paths, and offers on the off-tech topics page for more detail. All right, fairly beefy recap this week. Thanks to all our guests for joining. Thanks for Dave, Eduardo, Merch, my co-host as always, Clara, Josie, Peter Todd. Um, and we had a great set of contributors this week. Thank you all for your time. Thanks. Here, just soon. Cheers. Bye. Thank you.